This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. Well, exactly. I had a case of somebody I was speaking to recently how um, their company that they were uh, they were part they were involved in it IPOs, um, and as soon as it you know as it IPOed, literally all of the places they travelled to were sending them letters and saying, by the way, you know, you're, uh, you you uh, you worked here, your shares vested while you were here, you did X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, we, we deserve uh, some of the gains. Yeah. Welcome back to the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is John Lee. He's the co-founder of Work From Anywhere. Work From Anywhere is a remote work compliance software that helps companies basically navigate all the compliance issues surrounding remote work. And even if you're not a business owner, uh, maybe you're a digital nomad. I think a lot of people are going to have takeaways from this episode because these are trends that are going to continue to grow in the future where you know we've been in a bit of a gray area in the, the start of the remote work phenomenon. But I think as time goes on, this is going to become more and more acute of an issue, uh, compliance for remote workers. So really happy to have John on to talk to us all about it. Mr. John Lee, how's it going? It's great, fans. Good to be uh, chatting to you again. We had a good time catching up a couple of months ago. But yeah, thanks for having me on uh, today. Pleasure to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Are you still uh, calling in from Cascais, Portugal? I am actually. Um, it's been uh, it's been hectic last couple of weeks because I was in uh, I was speaking to a bunch of companies in Amsterdam. Uh, last week, uh, the week before, I was speaking to the uh, Spanish and Portuguese governments in Madeira, <clears throat> of all places. It was quite interesting. So I guess I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I get to speak on the one hand to governments and the other hand to uh, to companies, but also, of course, individuals. And for me, I've been a digital nomad myself for a number of years on and off. So, um, yeah, it's been fascinating to kind of see the whole evolution. But, yeah, good to be on here to, to speak about it today. Yeah, absolutely. Finally making it happen. Uh, I guess for the audience, we we met up in person, John and I, in Cascais, Portugal, uh, back in like November-ish. And John was gracious enough to show me the YAM uh, co-working out there in Cascais, which is one of the most beautifully done co-working spaces I've ever seen. Are you, are you actually recording at YAM right now? I'm actually not, no. But you know what? I do work there quite a bit. It is, uh, it is, it is really, I mean, for me... As a concept, it's uh, it's quite unique, and actually, I, I believe they are in the process of potentially opening uh, one in um, in Mexico. But it, it's it's fascinating in terms of the concept. It's so kind of very much focused on the community and a really amazing place that happens to be a place you can work, as opposed to being you know a workspace. Like how often do we go into into let's say co work spaces that just feel like a you know that feel like a, a, an open an open desk office? I mean, mm-hmm. really boring, not engaging. Because I think with the yeah, I am, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on it, but I, I, they really, they've got an interesting concept there. Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful space. Uh, I guess for anyone listening, it's basically like a house on a hill, 
uh, with, with ocean views and a pool and stuff like that. And they've converted this house into a big, basically co-working space. And there's no bedrooms. Every space of the house is basically dedicated to working and they have all these kind of different nooks and spaces and there's couches, there's tables, uh, a little bit of everything. There's kind of different floors, uh, and there's even a gym and stuff in the basement. There's even massage tables and stuff in the basement. So everything about it was super beautiful from the sunsets were spectacular in the evening and just the spaces and they had catered lunches as well. So they had, uh, I guess, you know, chefs cooking it up and then everyone gathers around these like communal tables to, to eat together. And I think that's probably one of the main ways that people get to kind of disconnect from from their jobs and then connect with the people that are physically with them in the space and go oh what are you working on where are you from blah 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 i remember having lunch with like some moroccan guys and like a bunch of people stuff so very very cool space overall it is i think what was nice about it as well is it's a mixture of of, uh, locals like portuguese and then expats people from different parts of the world and from various backgrounds, like some startup co-founders or, you know, people that are in design or people that are, you know, from all various different walks of life, basically a really nice mix. And that's kind of what, what makes it. So it's not easy doing these kind of spaces, these kind of projects, but I think they got the balance right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do something similar in the future. And uh, by the way, for any listeners that are very uh, acute listeners who pick up on details, we had an episode with Curtis Duggan, uh, I believe it was Curtis that uh, mentioned that he had visited you as well with YAM, and we got to talking a little bit about YAM in that previous episode. Curtis has visited you, right? Yes, yeah, he has indeed. Yeah, we had a good catch up with him as well a couple of couple of months ago. I mean, that's one of the the, the nice bits of living here in Cascais that. Yeah, uh, you know, previously I was a bit more that digital mode traveling all around the world, whereas now the world is kind of <laughs> is is coming to to visit uh, to visit me more more often than not. Uh, there's so much traffic going by, you know, via Lisbon and the whole area around here that you know you, you get to meet a, a lot of interesting people. So yeah, good to, good to catch up with uh, Curtis a couple months ago. For sure, and uh, I guess before we get all into remote work compliance and stuff, and and really I have a lot of questions about it. Maybe we could talk just briefly about Lisbon and maybe what you're seeing uh, in terms of Portugal's rise as a uh, remote work destination and digital nomad hub. And as you say, kind of the world is kind of coalescing on on Lisbon and it's certainly become uh, an increasingly important digital nomad hub. Well, it's interesting for me. I, If you go back to like, for me the last number of years, you know, we've uh, traveled all over the world. Like my, my eldest daughter, Rosa, she's five. She's now six um, in the last, uh, and, and she's already traveled to you know, 25, uh, 25 countries. So that'll kind of give you a fair idea for us, the family. Yeah. yeah so Rosa's six, Esme is four, and Barra is uh, one. Um, so we've we've had it pretty hectic, but we've still managed to get a fair bit of travel in, in the meantime. So five years ago, we were living in Amsterdam. We used that as a kind of a hub for traveling around Europe. Uh, we then moved over to uh, Thailand, uh, based ourselves out of Phuket. I used that to kind of travel all around Asia. Uh, then came back to Ireland during the pandemic, and then more or less moved here to uh, to Portugal. But what was what was kind of interesting is going back to when we were in Ireland. We were renting a place in Ireland, and the owners of the house more or less said they wanted to move back in. And we looked at other properties in in Ireland at the time, but the, the really there's a bit of a kind of a, a, a let's say a challenge with trying to find rentals in uh, in Ireland at the moment. Yeah, housing crisis has been really really difficult for Ireland. So 
we look at it and we said, you know what, if we're going to be paying a fair amount, why don't we just look at moving abroad? And so we're used to it. We had no problem doing it. So I kind of put together this overview. And I don't know if I've shared it with you, but I more or less put together this overview of every country in the world. And Portugal more or less came up really, really high. Like we looked at like, you know, we looked at places that were good kid, that good for kids' education, places that were safe, that had, you know, good tax benefits, uh, places of good quality of life that were not too expensive, uh, healthcare, things like that. So we looked at all these different elements. And I, I mean, I guess for me, you know, being more, let's say, as a digital nomad family or uh, let's say with kids, you'll have a different lens compared to maybe when I was like 25 years of age traveling or uh, traveling around the world. So for me, you know, the kids' education was was a big part of it. But I would definitely say when we looked at all the different countries, you know, Portugal came up really, really high. I mean, it's not the most original. I mean, I get that. Uh, we've, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty popular place. But when you get here, you know, you really understand why. Uh, you know the people are are, are fantastic. Uh, the food is amazing. At least you know uh, for 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 what I'm uh, what I really really love. And you know you're beside the sea, and yeah, there's there's so many different benefits here. But as well as, well as that's the community of other like-minded people. So for us, you know, the place felt like home almost immediately. So that's pretty unique when you're used to traveling around the world and you land in a place that really almost immediately feels like home. At the same time, I'm also conscious that, you know, it's a tremendous privilege to be able to do this. And I'm also conscious that, you know, you, you want, and, and I, this, when I was speaking in Madeira recently about this, you, you want places to be great places to live, but also uh, great places to visit. And, and sometimes if you get that balance wrong, um, you know, you can cause, uh, it can cause a bit of frustration to, to the local people. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, certainly we're seeing lately, there's been a pullback on certain you know, visa immigration benefits um, to, uh, to the foreigners coming in. So there's been maybe a little bit of pushback um, to a degree, but I, but I do think you know, in the long haul, Portugal is, is an amazing place to, to come visit and to work in. Mm-hmm. I'll hit you with one uh, slightly controversial uh, topic on, on Portugal, which is um, Joey Langenbrunner, uh, previous podcast guest, uh, frequent kind of Twitter commentator with us. He, he um, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you've met him, but he, he's been based in Lisbon for a while. But he said that that 2022 was peak Portugal due to them taking away the golden visa, due to potential crypto taxes in the future. Uh, and I think like one or two other kind of trends. And so he said peak Portugal 2022 in the past. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, but I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, there's just no doubt about it. In 2022, it had so much going for from from uh, from that perspective. But if you look at the whole visa immigration perspective, I mean, there are essentially tools in the toolbox of governments. And uh, I uh, remember speaking to uh, people like Gonzalo Hall about this uh, recently. And if you look at it, I mean, 10 years ago, uh, Lisbon, you know, in particular. Was uh, economically, it was uh, it was certainly a lot of underinvestment. The the property market was uh, was not in a good position, um, and so essentially the government used the visa immigration system and offered these tools, such as golden visa, to help attract investment, to help tra- attract foreigners coming in. And there's no doubt about it. I, I think the with remote work, there's a lot more people coming here for golden visas, but also for you know lots of the other visas, for example, to work here. And it really just exploded overnight. I mean, you know, you look at Cascais now, you try and get a house in, in Cascais, it's so much harder now than it was even when we came you know, a year, year and a half ago. Really? Um, and so, yeah, it really is. It's a, 
But what, I mean, the, the positive thing is that I think from a government perspective, they're trying to look at, okay, well, let's try and maybe uh, the hotspots have gotten maybe a little bit too hot. Uh, and the, the problem is, is that, you know, when you have so many people coming overnight, um, remote workers coming from all over the world, they're looking at geo-arbitrage, they're looking at taxes, they're looking at lower cost of living. All of a sudden, then you have this influx of people. And essentially, what it means is that if you don't get the balance right, well, then, you know, you're going to have the locals just simply not able to afford to be able to live in some of these places. So from a government perspective, they pulled off the tap on the, the golden visa, um, which made sense, actually, if you look at the property prices that were going up, I mean, literally the property prices in key areas were literally just flying up. Um, and I think trying to make it, it trying to keep it sustainable uh, in the long term it was a was that was a critical factor in it. But ultimately, in the long run, the remote workers and digital ones are going to hugely benefit uh, Portugal. But I think it's absolutely fair to say if he if he does say twenty twenty two was peak uh, Portugal from that perspective, I could I could see that argument because uh, definitely with the pullback and the gold visas one that it's going to be of course somewhat less attractive. And of course, with you know with uh, crypto, uh, it's more likely obviously to coming into that net. Uh, in the medium term as well, so I could I could absolutely understand that at uh, that perspective. But then I would also say, well, the perspective is also important for the locals that they feel that they can live here and that they're not going to be completely blown out of it with the you know rental prices and house prices uh, going through the roof. And even you know for me, even being relatively new here, I can see that the prices have uh, have uh, have really shot up. So uh, I think ultimately, at the same time, though, the government is very much welcoming of digital nomads and remote workers in the long run. And uh, you know, there's some of the most uh, you know the, the communities that are way ahead of this compared to a lot of other countries, such as, for example, Startup Madeira. I was only there last week uh, speaking to uh, the Portuguese and Spanish governments, and you know they're very, very proactive. They really do see that this can be an opportunity in the right way mm-hmm. um, if it's managed the right way. But at the same time, in the really high traffic destinations, the pain points such as Lisbon and whatnot. Um, they're very, very acutely aware of it. And it's a political kind of a hot potato at the moment. So it has to kind of be handled with care, I guess. Yeah, I think I saw when they canceled the golden visa program at the national level, I think I saw something about the Madeira uh, minister, uh, whatever you call him, uh, actually spoke out against the national government and kind of said like, oh, we we wish we could kind of keep it going in Madeira. Um just kind of trying to remember a headline around that, but it, it definitely seems like Madeira might take a different approach than the mainland. Well, yeah, what you see is in the whole Macronesia, is what this conference is speaking at around Macronesia, you basically have a number of these islands, such as uh, Madeira, such as uh, you know the, the, uh, the Canary Islands, Cabo Verde, the Azores. There's all these islands that... You know, they like take for example the Azores. I mean, they provide they provide like fifty percent, I think, uh, over fifty percent of the milk of all of Portugal. So you have these like typically these islands that were typically you know, quite rural and agrarian, and they relied heavily just on tourism. And now they're actually seeing that if they do it right, they can attract the remote workers to work. You know, at least temporarily in those islands, and potentially even get companies to base themselves there. Why? Why wouldn't they? I mean, why wouldn't you want to work in some place like Madeira, for example? Um, and so they're seeing that this can be a real strategic opportunity for FDI for investment in the long run. Um, so for them, a government, you know, if there's a, a political party that comes into government and really pushes back against this, it really hurts those islands, um, at those kind of places like that, more so than it would, for example, like Lisbon, which is going to be busy pretty much anyway for the next couple of years, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm guessing that's probably the, the background that's, that, where that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's other mechanisms and levers that they can 
uh, pull to, to keep attracting people to Madeira. Um, beautiful place. I still need to visit. Oh, you got to go, Vance. You got to go. It's, 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 a. Uh, it's hard to describe the landscape. It, it's, it's, it's really, really unique. It's really, really unique. Reminded me some bit of something like the, the South, uh, the South Island of, uh, of New Zealand. These really imp- impressive, lush, jagged landscapes. Um, it's a uh, yeah, it's, it's really, and of course, you're right beside the sea as well. And again, really welcoming people. Very, very nice. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, well worth a visit. Mm-hmm. Okay, one more question before we get into the remote work stuff. I guess I've been mm-hmm. teasing it, but how on earth do you bring? Uh, h- how did you do twenty five plus countries with such a, a young family? Um, <laughs> to bring well, us through that because I, yeah, I think a lot of people think that they got to stop once they have kids absolutely not absolutely not no for me that's the difference because you know I, I think we were we were digital nomad family for oh, we were doing it for seven seven or eight years so you've got to remember even before we kids we my wife and I Dee and I we traveled all over the world we uh, we had a deep passion for for traveling for exploring the world and and then we did um, our own uh, travel startup, and and we said, yeah, okay, we've, we've we're after having a, a baby girl, but we said that shouldn't stop us from from traveling. And it's interesting, even now. I mean, years later, like Rosa can still do the Thai greeting. Yeah, she knows exactly how to do it. So it's uh, and she was uh, she was that's back when she was maybe a year and a half, uh, a year and a half old. It's incredible. Um, and for me, like, the experience, the beauty, I mean, if you look at kids' education, right, yes, you get so much of it from a school, but you know what you get almost as much from in a lot of ways is from experiencing different cultures and being able to bring your kids with you to experience a different culture. That's a whole education in and of itself. And I think the difficulty is, is for a lot of us, for a lot of people, uh, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, you, you know, you could bring your kids to a country for a week or two on vacation you know, were they going to get exposed to too much of the culture? Probably not. But you know, with remote work now, you can, you know, even if you're employed by a company, you can you can easily go for a month, two months, three months in a lot of cases, and you know, bring your kids with that. That's that's an amazing experience. That's a life transforming experience. Bring them to a very different culture where they really get to get under the skin. Um, and uh, and I think with the different solutions that are out there now, such as working with Borders.com or Boundless Life, there's a few others that organize remote work community trips with the family and education components, mm-hmm. components brought into it, where you can actually have your kids on uh, being taught locally and everything as well. So there's a lot of interesting kind of innovations to make it that much easier. So I would complete. I would argue that yes, it's a, it's definitely requires a bit more planning, but it's a, it's an amazing experience for both the parents and the kids. Yeah, very very cool. I think I'll have to follow you, follow up with you offline about uh, maybe getting in contact with some of these family trip planning uh, services because I think that would be cool to get on the podcast too and talk about the family element. Well, it it would because when we did a survey, we did a survey two years ago on the pain points for both companies and individuals. And for companies, it was obvious tax was the biggest pain point when it came to remote work. For individuals, when we looked at the sub segments. Tax was the biggest pain point, but when we actually stripped out the different kind of cohorts, we could see that for parents, kids' education was the biggest pain point. So it's something that's very visceral. It's very emotional. Um, and I think with the education systems, the way they're set up, they do make it a lot harder. You know, they really penalize you if you're taking your kids out of school for uh, for even a week or two. 
Um, and so there's a lot of worry in behind that. So again, they, these kind of uh, these uh, these uh, let's say platforms that are emerging to help address that, they are very very exciting. And I think the traditional schooling systems will be challenged by this. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and kind of a good segue as well because you you started talking about two months, three months. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so <laughs> let let's start to talk a little bit about uh, I guess work from anywhere and and remote work compliance as a whole. Um, do you want to do the the honors of just kind of outlining uh, the the what what remote sorry what work from anywhere does as a company and the problem that you guys are solving? Yeah, so what we have is we have a kind of a tax technology platform that uh, really helps uh, companies, typically you know mid to large size companies, um, be able to assess in literally a couple of seconds what are the tax and other risks of of somebody if you want to hire them from a different country remotely or if you want to allow them to work temporarily in a different country. So that's both, both hire and work from anywhere. For those scenarios, what are the risks? But then what is the solution? You know, is the solution a digital nomad visa or is it to set up a legal entity or is it to use an employer of record or to, you know, hire somebody as a contractor, for example? The, the answers are different depending on the country and the scenario and who's doing the activities that they're doing in the country combinations. Uh, it's quite complex. We basically built our own proprietary algorithm over the last two years that allows companies to, you know, get the right answer at the touch of a button. And um, the good thing for, you know, any of your listeners is that if anyone is curious about it, you can actually get free access. Visit the, the website, wfa.team. And they can go in and they can get a free uh, seven-day trial. So that will give them some access to cover a fair amount of the countries that they might be already looking for. Um, so, yeah, again, that's a free resource. We have a lot of other free resources available uh, on the, the website. But essentially, the, the, the idea is that when you know, 10 years ago with remote work, it really wasn't such a big issue. And companies typically just had expats. And if that was the case, you typically went to external advisors uh, to get all of the risks on, you know, tax and whatnot. And essentially what's happened is that with remote work, it's obviously exploded the amount of people that are requesting this. Um, and so it's not feasible and it's not realistic to expect companies to go every single time and pay three, four, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 to a tax advisor and wait six weeks to get an answer to the report. But if you can automate it through technology, well, then that can, uh, on the one hand, save companies a bunch of money, but also make it much quicker to get the answer you're looking for. And I think I remember when we had dinner, you outlined like three or four main bullet points about, uh, I think it was just like what what's important to companies or the three or four big issues or, or trip ups that people often face and that, that you guys kind of help uh, to combat and provide a little bit of visibility around. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's if you look at it, you know, we, we try and help companies get to either a yes or a no pretty quickly but turning it around it also gives us a pretty unique perspective on why companies often say no to international remote work whether you're working as a consultant independent contractor or an employee or whatnot and if you look at it there's a couple of big you know there's a couple of uh, of uh, risks some obvious some maybe less obvious um the one that might surprise some people uh, that is a massive risk is essentially around permanent establishment. So when we think of tax, we often think of, oh, well, I've, for me as an individual, 
I, if I go and spend 183 days in a country, I'll become tax resident and that's a big risk. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a risk for you as an individual, but actually a much bigger one is what if the company becomes partly tax resident? And so that's what permanent establishment is. That basically how it happens is that typically speaking, uh, if you know you have the senior management team or sales generating employees, just to name two, for example, and they spend a period of time working in, let's say, the south of France for, uh, I don't know, six or seven months a year, for example, there's a risk that, yes, okay, for those, let's say, those people, they themselves might become individually tax residents and do their individual taxes. Um, but if, let's say, the company, if the French tax authorities say, listen, they have permanent establishment in France, then all of the sales that they have generated, for example, all of a sudden become taxable to corporation tax uh, in uh, in France, for example. So it can have a huge, huge impact um, to, to companies and it can cost them millions if they get it wrong. Um, yeah, isn't that so, crazy? I mean, uh, I guess just to double down on that because that surprised me too. Let's just say you're listening to this. Maybe you're a high ticket closer. You're a sales guy, right? And you go to you go to south of France for a couple of weeks and you're doing your sales calls from France. You're closing clients from France technically you might have to pay tax to France on those deals that you closed while on the phone, while physically in France. That's pretty frightening to a lot of people. Yeah. So the really frightening thing is that it's uh, where it gets tricky is that some countries have a really wide, um, you know, broad definition of permanent establishment and they're strict, you know, strict as hell. Um, Other countries are much more relaxed, more laissez-faire, whatnot, you know, if you happen to go to a country that is quite strict, that has a you know a very wide definition of this, then you know you really all, all better off. Now, look, if you're only going for a week or two, the risk really is practically you know, it's it's not zero, but it's not very very high. Put it that way. But I'll tell you, if you're going for a couple of months, you know, I, I'd be careful about celebrating all those big deals on social media, and uh, you know, you want to be very careful because one of the challenges is that. You know, we've all seen with COVID, digitalization has helped all of our businesses. We're doing this podcast digitally. Um, but guess what? You know, the immigration authorities, they've digitalized. Uh, the tax authorities, they've digitalized in other cases as well. Obviously, not everyone. But the challenge becomes if you have jurisdictions that have those digital databases and immigration and tax, and they just share one with the other, all of a sudden, you know, that's where the, the challenges can lie. Um, and we're already seeing it, actually, in the last uh, in the last two weeks. There's been stories coming out. You might have heard of them yourself, Vance, but there's been stories coming out of places like, for example, Spain and uh, also Bali. Like Bali have put together a task force to go after uh, digital nomads working illegally and, and not declaring it. Um, mm. So I think there's a lot of money here at stake for countries and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Again, if somebody's only going to be in and out for a week or two, you know, the risk is really limited. But if you're going to be there for a couple of months, uh, you, want to get your, you want to get yourself together and make sure you've got this covered. It's insane. And so, yeah, so many directions I could take this. I mean, both from the digital nomad perspective or the individual perspective, and then also from the the corporate perspective, because I totally get it. If I was running like a thousand person company, um, you don't want like a hundred, 500 employees, thousand employees running around the globe, like potentially tripping tax rules with different authorities. It's just like an insane risk and headache. And so I think that's where you guys kind of step in and you guys kind of 
provide a bit of a framework and say, look, you guys can kind of like run around the world if you like, but here's the framework that you're going to need to follow. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to be able to work with us, basically. Well, ex- well ex- exactly. And so if you think of it, you know, uh, some people think, oh, work from anywhere. I can work from where I want. Well, I'm sorry. Like, for the first problem you're going to run into is your own visa and passport. You can't work from, you can't even get access to every country in the world uh, visa-free, for example, just to name but one. Yeah, so, so, so basically to- it's called work from anywhere, <laughs> but the whole idea is you're telling people where they can't work from. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, telling, you're telling where you can and can't. T- like, for example, if somebody wants to work in North Korea for nine months, I'm sorry, you're going to, you can't get a, you can't get a visa. You're going to be individually tax resident. There's a permanent establishment, there's a whole bunch of other things. I'm sorry, it, it's just not going to work. Uh, by the way, you can get tortured as well. So, you know, I think it's, it's if you look at the key risks, I mean, there's a couple of them. So permanent establishment, that's a corporation tax risk. That's a big one. That's one that goes flies under the radar. Um, the other ones that you have is individual tax residency. So for you as an individual, you'll become tax resident. You also have payroll withholding, uh, for example. So uh, yes, you as an individual in a lot of countries, it might be 183 days before you uh, become uh, individually tax resident. Um, but guess what? In a lot of countries, you know, after as little as a day, you have technically a payroll withholding risk where your company is supposed to be uh, deducting the, the correct payroll taxes or whatnot. Um, mm. The other ones you have is Social Security, for example. So the rules around Social Security coverage or whatnot um, are, are also something that can often slip below the net as well. Employment law is another obvious one as well. Um, related to that, you've got contractor misclassification. So, yeah, you might say, oh, I'm an independent contractor. I'll do what I want. But actually, if you're working really just for one client and, you know, you're pretty much doing everything that practically qualifies you as an employee, which can very often be the case, then, you know, you'll be treated as an employee. And that brings with it a whole separate bunch of tax risks as well coming along on top of that. But then you also have things like, for example, uh, the, you know, the duty of care, the data privacy and security risk or whatnot. Um, that's another one as well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, being careful of that side. So there's a bunch of them putting all together. But that's not to say it's not possible to be done. There's plenty of options. There's plenty of ways to do it correctly. But it just means that you know you can't just say to everyone, "Off you go, work wherever you want." You do need to have a little bit of an idea as to where people are working. If nothing else, from purely alone, like their their data and where they're going, we're seeing with GDPR and and data regulations, for example, if somebody decides to work in a a country where the data isn't safe, well, hold on a second, how are we going to manage that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so many issues. It's, it's crazy, and and even just on the data one, I have a, a a client this week that was coming to me, and he said that um, he's been working remote for a couple months for a U.S. company, but now they're finally saying that compliance has had enough, and he's got to make his way back to the states asap before the end of the month, or he's going to get terminated. And so he's kind of looking at like, oh, do I, you know figure out some complicated VPN strategy and basically spoof that I'm in the US or do I actually have to go back? I don't want to go back. I guess I got to terminate this work relationship. And um, so it's it's crazy. The the biggest thing I would say is that, you know, I think it's important to challenge these departments that are, you know, challenge HR in a very kind of open and honest, um, you know, an inquisitive way. I mean, ultimately, you know, for me, some excuse my French, but somebody come along and telling me, "Oh, you can't work due to compliance." Okay, well, tell me more. Tell me why. What, what risk is it? Let me, you know, let me at least try and understand what aspect of it is, and if there's anything I can do about it. Is it that you're worried about a particular component of tax? If it is, you can maybe do your research on that. Is it data privacy and security or whatnot? I mean, 
like the, 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 the tricky thing is that the risks around this it really comes down to the risk appetite of the company that you're working with. So some companies have a really big risk appetite. Maybe they, especially the ones that employ a lot of software engineers, yeah. uh, you know, they have a quite a high risk appetite because they know they want to give the most flexibility. If they don't give the most flexibility, then they're not going to be able to get the best talent. And so they'll have a bit of a higher risk appetite. But then you maybe, for example, might have like a bank that's heavily reg- regulated. Like take, for example, a bank, like a lot of the roles are actually regulated. So they're not actually, you know, in a lot of cases, you're not even supposed to be working abroad hardly at all. So uh, I think it really, it really depends on the, the regulatory framework and the risk appetite uh, and the industry that the company you're working for, for is in. But at the very least, try and have an open, transparent conversation and, and challenge them and ask them like, what aspect is it, what's the issue, uh, what's the risk in particular that's being flagged here, you know? Yeah, and so you're talking about risk profile. And my understanding is from the dashboard uh, of the software, of the Work From Anywhere software, you, you it's not just a yes or no. It's not just yes, France, no, France. It's actually more of a sort of like a sliding scale or a spectrum where you say like, look, your your risk is increasing beyond the two week mark. Your risk is increasing beyond the two month mark, and you have like, you know, yellow, green, red, and 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 you kind of explain the risks that are available. So it's not as it's not super binary in that sense, is my understanding. Well, and it's not, and and it shouldn't be either as well. I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, what's what's important, you know, the challenge is that typically the one of the reasons why a lot of companies say no is because they're looking at the amount of fees they're spending on tax advisors around the world and they're saying, no, 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 this just, just, just won't work. It's too expensive. Um, so, for example, you might you know, might want to go and work in, I have no idea, like it could be Colombia, but the problem is, is they've got to spend five or 10 or $15,000 on the advice to check whether it's okay for you to work there. And all of a sudden, it just becomes privately expensive. But that's why with our technology platform, you know, it literally, they can get access to it for as little as $750. So, yeah, if they want to, they get full access to the higher end version of the platform for like twelve thousand dollars. But that's the equivalent of maybe one or two scenario checks with an external tax advisor, typically. So, I think uh, you know, it's, uh, the the platform we have does help to identify, you know, where where is the risk profile for each trip, um, and it allows them to actually recognize and realize actually for this trip, hold on a second, the risks are not huge. We we can probably say yes to this. Um, so that's the advantage of using, you know, not just our software, but also other types of ta- international kind of tax and remote work tax uh, technology software. We actually wrote an article about this recently, about the different t- ones that are available. But essentially, there are solutions out there that help companies understand the, the risks. But more importantly, what we do is we say, look, okay, that's the risk, but this is the solution then. It's a solution to set up a legal entity or to look at an employee record or to look at a digital nomad visa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think a lot of people previously assumed that it was just all about tax residency. It's like, look, I'm not a tax resident of France. I should be good to go. Um, But I think what we're slowly discovering about this remote work world, and I guess like whole like tax compliance world, is that it's not really just that. There's payroll tax. There's withholding, as, as you said. There's like employment law. Maybe technically in the States you're considered a contractor, but France might consider you... A different status so there's all these like risks beyond tax residency not to be too redundant because i know you kind of ran through the list before but do you want to just run through the list like one more time of like what are some of those uh some of those fields that you have on your platform in terms of like things that you're 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 checking the box on 
Yeah, absolutely. So the the first one is looking at the the payroll risk, the payroll tax risk, um, which uh, you know defines what are the risks from individual tax residency and payroll tax withholding and whatnot. For example, so payroll tax risk is one. The second one is social security. Um, that's other components like the social security, for example, in France uh, can be uh, over thirty five percent, whereas I think it's in Norway at zero percent. So that can be a huge component of the cost. To a, comp- to a company, but also to the individual for, to, to, to think about. Uh, so big variation there. You also have corporation tax or permanent establishment, we call it. Um, that's the one where you know, your company can become party resident in that country. That can have a huge cost. Uh, you also have employment law as well. Uh, employment law, like if, and if somebody ends up getting fired while they're in a particular country and subject to that, employment law can have a huge cost <laughs> to the company so as well. So it's like if, yeah. you think, if you think you're going to get fired, Go to France, baby. Go to France. <laughs> exactly. So Get fired, that's it. Record your phone call. Exactly. Exactly. But it's go, true. I mean, and you then go to the France authorities <laughs> and say, "Look, I need unemployment. I don't know." Exactly. I mean, it might not be quite as easy as that, but essentially, the the, the concept is essentially that if you, you know, if you spend time in that country, um, then uh, you'll be uh, subject to the to the local employment law there uh, uh, very often. And so the last piece is then contractor misclassification, uh, and that's a big one. So you know, we're seeing the fractionalization of work, how people are uh, you know looking to have their own independence and set their own time you know, slots and schedules and 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 have that bit of freedom. But the challenge is, is that in certain countries. There can be a big risk of contractor misclassification, and um, so for companies, they may not want to hire you in that country. You know, and and it, again, it, sorry, the term you're using is contractor misclassification. Yeah, contractor misclassification. That's where okay. you say, "Oh, let's set up a contractor agreement. I'm an independent contractor now. I can go wherever I want." But the problem is, is that uh, the risk in certain countries, they might say, "Well, actually, you know what? You're just working for one company." You're uh, you're actually really an employee of that company, and that brings with it a whole bunch of other complexities for both you know for both yourself and the company. Mm-hmm. So I mean, one one obvious one, for example, is that is that uh, you know is uh, is is uh, is for example, if you're seen as an employee, then all of a sudden that company now all of a sudden has to pay all of the, for example, social security and other taxes, for example, that the employer needs to pay on top of whatever they paid you, for example. So okay, can so, quite so big... look, can we use an example for this just mm. so I get a, Go for a, a good understanding of it? So let's just say um, you work for an American company, right? Because our, yep. our audience is probably 50% US. So yep. you work for an American company and they say, look, if you, if you want to travel the world, you want to go to Bali, you want to go to France, uh, you just can't be a full-time employee. So we're going to set you up as a contractor, mm-hmm. uh, 80 bucks an hour, and uh, we'll call it a day and and sweet. So you're a contractor now. You get a, what's it called? I forget, 1099 status? Anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then, and then how does that work? So then you go, you go to spend a couple of months on the French Riviera as a yeah. contracting for an American company. And then what, France is going to come in and say, no, you're actually a full-time employee of that American company, but we want taxes. And it's kind of a weird well, yeah, like, so, triangle, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot will depend. There'll be 
potentially a different profile of risk depending on whether you're directly employed as a freelancer um, or whether you're you're getting invoiced to uh, to a, a separate kind of limited liability company, for example. So the the risk can vary there a little bit. But essentially, you know, if you're going temporarily for a few weeks or even you know two or three months, that's probably not going to be a huge issue. But I'll tell you, if you're going spending you know a year or two working in France. Uh, that's where you know these risks can become um, can become uh, you know can can certainly become uh, more of an issue with independent let's say contractor and contractor classification. It tends to be more of an issue when uh, you're talking about hiring people. So it's when you're actually looking to engage people for the first time, either as employees or to employers of record or as, as independent contractors. Um, some countries are are just much strict. Like for example, in take the UK, they have this legislation called IR35. That basically makes it really hard to be a contra- an independent contractor um, in the UK. Right, right. But, but that's a relationship UK. just between you and the home country that's like contracting with you. So that's like yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. that's like employment law that's existed for a long time. Yeah, where they, they have uh, uh, what's it called? They have they have metrics where they say, are you performing more than twenty hours a week? Uh, yeah. blah blah blah. Right. So I get yeah. that when it's only one country and they kind of have metrics. And that's pretty straightforward. But where it gets muddy, I guess, is when there's like a second country involved. Yeah. But, and again, going back to it, you know, if you're spending a lot of time in that country, you go, you are going to be subject to the local employment law in that country. So, mm. you know, it's, I give an example. I mean, like a very clear example that, uh, that we, uh, we uh, would have heard of during the pandemic. There was an independent contractor who decided to go work in Spain um, spent a good bit of time there and then they got COVID. They ended up in hospital and they ended up successfully suing the company that they were working for and said, oh, there's contract classification. You know, we, uh, we actually, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I should have been treated as an employee and you've got to pay my hospital fees. So this person had racked up maybe, I don't know, four or 500,000. I have no idea, like a huge amount of fees and hospital fees because they were obviously in hospital for a number of months and they successfully sued the company and the company ended up having to pay an absolute bucket load for this, even though they had been hired as an independent contractor. So, you know, that's the risk, um, you know, from the company perspective, uh, let's say for the individual who's the independent contractor themselves, obviously that was, that, that was going to be a benefit. Uh, but we're also seeing, for example, with the gig economy legislation with Uber uh, and whatnot, um, all of the legislation around the world around gig economy that happened with that, that yeah, there's definitely a lot more focus on local tax on local authorities on this. And the reason there is, is because, you know, they're, they're losing tax, you know, they're losing tax dollars. Once people go from being an employee to a contractor, there's potentially, uh, you know, a, a leakage of tax revenue that they could be uh, missing out. Right, right, right. Okay. How, and if a country was to kind of bring the hammer down, in what form does it take? Like, how do they are because they don't really have a place where they can send you a letter. Um, they're probably not going to get like a private investigator to like pull up to your Airbnb. Is it do they do they get at you when you're like leaving the country and they say, hey, you can't board this flight. Step aside. We got to talk to you about a couple things. Like, how do they actually even like get at you? <laughs> well, I, I give you I give you an example. So, you know, it, I, again, it, it, it's all with all these things. The tax authorities and the immigration authorities, they take like a risk-based approach to this kind of stuff. So, you know, if you're just slightly taking the piss, <laughs> you'll, you'll be fine. 
But it's when your people are really, you know, really going overboard that that's where you run into these issues. And I give you a, a very clear example: Thailand. You know, we spent six months there in 20, uh, 2018. It was an amazing time. Mm-hmm. We were the ones doing the visa runs, which are technically not legal. You know, we were the ones going in and out doing what we needed to do mm-hmm. for the visa runs, um, and even overstaying our visas. With babies, by that's impressive, by the way. Sorry. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then we were, you know, overstaying our visas and paying it by a couple of days or a week or two and, you know, pay a fine. No big deal. It was very different this time. Yeah, this time we went back in, uh, oh, back in 20, back in 2021 and we uh, spent five weeks there. Like you could see how they were definitely much stricter. They made it very clear. Like there's no, you know, you overstayed a visa, you're going to be in serious trouble here. Um, you know, they were, they were the whole like concept of visa runs, they really clamped down on. Mm. Um, and so essentially what happened, where it all comes down to is where are you going to get caught? It's going to be at the immigration. Like for example, take, take the U S you know, are you going to, are you going to go to the U S and say, and lie at, at, at the purpose of your visit or whatnot in the U S uh, you can, you can give it a go, but it, it's, <laughs> it's not a place you want to mess about with on the border. Um, and it's the same with different countries. So come back to the point I was making. It all depends on how, to a large degree, how digitalized the tax authorities' uh, databases are, and, and whether that interfaces at all with the uh, with the visa databases. And so, take for example, India. India they launched an e-visa in the last couple of years. There's lots of other countries that have also launched an e-visa. So, if you're going to a country that has an e-visa, and if their tax authorities also have an online portal, for example, for doing things. Um, then you know you, you'd uh, you might be getting just a little bit um, nervous. You'd want to watch yourself, you know. We, uh, and I think it will happen at the border. Um, and and if you leave, and if uh, you know if they uh, if uh, if uh, if they if they send fines or whatnot, if you decide not to pay them, then that's fine. But then you 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 would not want to have plans of going back there. But the problem is, is that if if it's a very significant fine, well then hold on a second, you could be potentially looking at a. At extradition um, or, 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 uh, or other aspects that you, if you look at, for example, the tax authorities between each other internationally, they have they have like tax data sharing agreements where they share data with each other. So just because you've uh, you haven't reported in one country or maybe done it in another, don't don't be surprised if those tax authorities share data with each other as well. So they'd be the things that I would be looking at. Hey everybody! Hey everybody! Quick break from the podcast to tell you about Language Blend, the best new way to learn Spanish. Language Blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, decade of experience in Latin America. And Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. Okay. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, so you think it probably is typically like when you're leaving or at the airport or like, you know what I mean? It's like, how do they give this like international warrant or how, how do they even like when it, so all these like risks that you're uh, mm-hmm. assessing, you know, when the hammer comes down, just to sorry to be redundant again, but I just really want, I, I've always been curious about this because I've never heard of anyone like really getting in trouble or, well, maybe I've heard of a couple, but I'm just kind of curious, like wh- when they would actually approach you and how they would approach you. 
Well, if you take permanent establishment, like one of the um, one of the biggest fines in history was a fine of one point two five billion euros, um, and it was uh, I have the details here. Actually, somebody was asking about this. Actually, quite quite uh, quite quite recently, it was uh, the Italian tax agency. They settled a one point two five billion dollar fine. Um, with a company called Coring. They were the French-owned conglomerate, which controls the likes of Gucci, mm-hmm. Saint Laurent, uh, Bo- uh, Bottega, Veneta, like some of the, like the biggest luxury brands in the world. Um, and, and they completely uh, they completely nailed them in uh, 2000 and December 2017. Um, I think it was finally it was published in 2018, the recommendation. But you know, permanent establishment is one thing that can really, really hit you. Uh, what we're seeing in the last week alone, and uh, the last two weeks, we've seen how in Spain and Bali in particular, they're cracking down on uh, illegal, uh, uh, let's say, work and tax by mm-hmm. digital nomads as well. Um, so how will they get you? Well, they're going to get you by creating their own algorithm and and risk assessment. And they'll, what they'll do is is they'll they'll start with the people that have been coming quite frequently or for long periods to the country. Um, and they'll look and they'll you know they'll look and see uh, have they been working in the country or not. And if they say they haven't been working, they'll they'll take one look on, for example, social media, and they'll see if you have been um, yeah if you have been actually uh, let's say uh, uh, working or announcing any big deals or whatever it might be, for example. And then you're going to get a visit. You know they'll have they'll have, <laughs> just, they'll have. Uh, just close the three th- three million dollar deal from my. The, from uh, from here in Paris, it's like oh yeah, God. <laughs> yeah, abs, abs, absolutely. Like there you go, set up like it's it's as easy as setting up Google alerts for any idiot that decides to go and announce a big massive announcement that oh we signed the deal. I give you I give you another example. Like there was somebody we 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 heard a good example of somebody um in global mobility told me before that uh, they 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 were they watched in horror as uh, their CEO was uh, was interviewed. Um, by the BBC and was uh, told how uh, he was having such a great time spending you know six months a year working in the south of France and everyone in the office back in the compliance function just put their head in their hand and said you've got to be fucking kidding me like you literally couldn't you know you couldn't be broadcasting it anymore and in, in, in any kind of a worse of a place than you know, on the BBC more or less saying you're working uh, mm-hmm. To all intents and purposes, okay. illegally. So, so let's just say, so the the revenue agency they figure out yep. we're coming after this guy. That for whatever reason, any hubrics, hub, whatever, any metrics, they'll change mm-hmm. over time. Maybe they use like the phone signals. Who knows? It'll change over time. When and then when they decide to come down on you, like how does that how does that process happen? It it really depends on the, on the country. It really depends on the country. I mean, for the the countries where they've got double taxation agreements in place, and they've also got um, you know tax data sharing agreements in place, uh, it it, uh, it could be the case that um, it could be uh, contacted uh, potentially uh, when uh, in conjunction with your own uh, let's say home based uh, tax authorities, for example. Um, if it's not the case, uh, you know, it'll, it'll depend in some cases, uh, like part of the challenge, like it's, it's not just, it's not just, you know, it's, it's not just, for example, when um, waiting for them to get you at the border, it can also be the case, for example, let's say you uh, run into a legal issue while you're there in the country, you know, you run into an issue where you, I don't know, you get into, for argument's sake, uh, you have a traffic accident and it goes to court and all of a sudden, hold on a second, it turns out you've been working here and all of a sudden 
you get one government department sharing data with another, and all of a sudden you're 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 in trouble. But to be honest, again, I, I don't want to be overplaying the risks here as well at the same time. I mean, we've got to be realistic here. It's not like there's a big bad tax boogeyman waiting to catch every digital nomad knocking around there. But it's just that the point being is that it's all about a measure of how long you stay in a country. And it's I mean it's pretty simple. At the end of the day, it's pretty common sense. I often, you know, I'm I often try and say when it talks when it, when it comes to tax you know, tax people can can make it very complicated, but actually it's quite simple. At the end of the day, if you're spending most of your time working in a country, you're probably going to have to pay tax there. And it's it's really is that simple. If you're going to be spending most of your time there. People get it when it's like over six months. But I think, yeah. I think maybe a takeaway that listeners might have is they might be surprised to know that even as low as you tell me, but like as low as one or two months could trigger it. Well, exactly. I had a case of somebody I was speaking to recently. How um, their company that they were uh, they were part they were involved in it IPO'd, um, and as soon as it you know as it IPO'd, it, literally all of the places they traveled to were sending them letters and saying, "By the way, you know, you uh, you you worked here. Your shares vested while you were here. You did X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, we, we deserve uh, some of the gains." That's yeah. nuts. That's nuts. Yeah, they know yeah. they know the ROI, like they know where the big paydays are. I guess exactly. So, for example, in, in shares that are vesting, uh, what some companies do is they basically pause the vesting while that person is traveling abroad, because it leads to an absolute Damn. bloody nightmare. Yeah. That's crazy. So uh, yeah, of course that makes sense. I mean, somebody like whatever it is, Uber Uber's gone public. All right, let's take a look at every Uber employee that was in this country in the last five years. That's all they've got to do. They all oh, Uber's gone public. Let's go back in immigration records. What was the company they're working for? It was Uber. Oh, okay. Let's send them a letter. <laughs> Were you working here? Did you declare your? Uh, did you declare it? Did you invest any shares? I mean, it's not that hard. Does that's the other end of the scale as well? It it might not be when you're actually there. It might be until you sell your business for a couple of million in a couple of years time. Mm-hmm. So it's about being smart about it as well. And for permanent establishment, like one of the things that some companies do as well is uh, they're very careful about where they sign contracts and how they even negotiate contracts and who does it, who has the authority to do it. Again, being very, very careful. If you go into a country that is, you know, very high tax and very high risk, uh, you better be damn sure you're not signing a whole bucket load of contracts and you're not performing any activities that are high risk. Um, But even then, you're still not out of the woods. You've got to be very, very careful. I think it's about... Excuse the French. It's about taking the head, taking people's head out of their asses, and, and actually just being aware that there are some countries here that are super strict. They're super strict, so you really got to watch out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have a bunch of questions. I mean, what are the strictest countries? Uh, oh, um, well, so it, it depends on the risk, I guess, doesn't it? I mean, you got from the visa immigration. Like, I would not want to be messing with the U.S., you know. Yeah. I really would not want to be messing in the U.S., um, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, if you look at permanent establishment, like, some countries are are, are really tricky in this. Like, you've got uh, clearly, you know, the likes of the Frances and Italys of this, of this world, but also places like like India, you know. It can be uh, much trickier than, than you'd expect. Uh, for Social Security, like, the countries that have a high Social Security, uh, you know, let's say taxes like that that's one they're the ones that you that you really need to watch to to watch out for um you know obviously employment contractor certification like the uk with ir35 very very strict um 
we talk about data privacy and security and whatnot, obviously with Europe, Europe and GDPR and whatnot, but also places like, for example, Cuba, like you've got to watch out there on the Russian network. So it can be quite tricky, uh, tricky there uh, as well. Thankfully, there are some, you know, there are some good tools out there that can help you understand what the level of risk is for each of these, each of these different countries. Um, uh, Bali is starting to get very strict now. They've started to get very, very strict from a legal perspective but also cracking down on, on digital nomads in, in general. They've, they've essentially, you, look, you can see Changu has gotten plagued with, with their remote workers. So uh, I think yeah, they've, uh, they've started to really crack down uh, yeah. on it. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a mix and match. There's a, they, on the other hand, you've got countries in the, like the Caribbean and, and, and a lot of countries you know, in Southern Europe have launched these digital nomad visas, which some of them are terribly designed, some of them are really well designed. But you can see, like these countries are seeing that it's an opportunity. So, like in some of those countries, there'll be uh, more opportunities. Okay. So, so, and just to double down on that, what are the countries that are just constantly flagging red, where people are like, "Hmm, can I go here?" And it's just like, "No." <laughs> um. Well, I I think you know, you you've got it's I I I'd hate to um. I'd hate to generalize. No, I'm going to get you in I'd, trouble, and, and now you're no, going to get I, 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 conferences. Certainly, no, there. certainly, do you, certainly, do you, do you, the US is is one you you really like. Even like a lot of states in particular, you got to be very very careful in the US. Places like uh, China, for example, you know, from a data privacy security perspective, also taxes like they really they really want to push you towards um, legal entities uh, if you're dealing with the, in, in China, for example. Um, you know, Southern Europe is a funny one, and that on the one hand, they're uh, really encouraging with a lot of digital mode visas, but at the same time, you know, traditionally they would be quite strict, and and, and mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the definition of things like, for example, uh, permanent, permanent uh, let's say, uh, establishment. But I, I would say it's hard to like Africa can be also quite tricky in some some many of the countries in Africa. You, you have to be quite careful how you navigate that, for example. Um, unfortunately, like there's a list as long as my arm of countries. Like, clearly, North Korea, places like North Korea, those dangerous places like that, you've got to watch out for as well. But I mean, there's a list as long as my arm uh, that of countries that it can be certain types of risk in certain type of countries. But again, that shouldn't stop people from embracing up embracing the the world of different places you can travel to. Because just because there's certain risk, like even take for example France, just because France is risky, yes, it is. But it, there's ways and means of of getting it done. That you can uh, mitigate your risk, and you can make sure you're not opening the whole, you know, yourself and your company up to a whole, you know, a house of horrors of risks. Okay. And then on the uh, the flip side of the coin, what are the most uh, chill countries, or the the countries where the least flags are uh, are pulled? Um, we're certainly seeing with the likes of uh, digital with digital in the Caribbean in particular. Uh, I mean, there there's a ton of them that have uh, opened up. Um, you know, we're we're uh, we're seeing like a lot of those countries anyway. They have very very low tax. Um, I do have. I'm a big believer in South America in the long run. I think that's going to be such an opportunity for uh, for South America, particularly being pretty much in the similarish time zone as as uh, as the US. Um, so I, I think there's opportunities there, but but right now it, it's a yeah it, it's a it's going to be maybe if you're a long term resident, lots of opportunities, especially from a tax perspective, uh, but for short term remote working can be a little bit uh, can be a little bit tricky. Um, but the companies that are chill, I would say, uh, countries like um, yeah, let me think. You're certainly looking at uh, you know are, like for example in Europe, I would say places like for example 
Ireland, uh, Portugal. Uh, Portugal is great, although we're keeping a close eye on things and, and how, how that's panning out. Um, I would say Southeast, in Southeast Asia, uh, the likes of Thailand, uh, if you look at per the, you know, the definition of a lot of the laws, you, you, it's, it's uh, even their immigration, they don't really have a huge amount of options, for example, like a digital visa or whatnot, but they've been working on. Um, but I think that's a, a still it's a very very popular place for digital digital nomads. Although I again I'm I'm conscious that Bali's now cracking down, so I'll be interested to see what happens in Thailand in response. Um, but yeah, like there's a there are plenty of really really good countries that are that are opening up in terms of options for people to to work from. Um, I'm interested how you're finding Mexico, Vance. Uh, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean Mexico has always historically been known as a country that's very chill in terms of remote workers and uh, uh, expats from Canada, the US and Europe coming here and the Mexico not going after them. On paper, though, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a one of those things where the rules on paper and how things operate in practice are very different. And you never know, like, that's why you really have to have your bases covered, because you never know in the future when the policy might change and they start might start enforcing it, and uh, it, it you know it'll it'll usually come as a surprise. Yeah, I think a hundred percent. Like that's part of the challenge of Mexico is that when you know when we were looking at this is that uh, you know they've, uh, they've there's a certain amount of local people have to be employed in any companies that have operations there, and then they have like a, they launched this illegal outsourcing law uh, in the last two years, which just makes it that bit trickier for independent contractors um and but at the same time then it's a juxtaposition on the one hand like you say like the laws on paper being quite tricky but at the same time then you have so many remote workers especially from the u.s and canada that are that have flocked there over the last um over the last uh over the last year or two so um i think it's i mean it's it's, it's a net positive for mexico in the in the, in the long run but I, I'm, I'm watching that one like a hawk <laughs> let me tell you Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mexico's nice. Yeah, I think a lot of what I'm what I'm seeing as kind of the global trend here is that people used to think, okay, less than six months should be good. Five point five months should be good, and then people started saying, you know, nomad capitalists started saying we need a trifecta approach. If you do four months a country, you should be good. So four months, four months in Europe, four months in Mexico, four months somewhere else, you should be good. And then now, kind of. I think what we're what we're learning and, and what people are learning by listening to to Mr. John Lee and and what, what what we're learning is that even four months might be too much in most places, especially angry, high tax, high social security tax countries where really it's almost like it needs to be less than like one month or I don't know less than six weeks. It's kind of crazy. Like that the bar just keeps uh, the. the the bar keeps lowering. I guess you could say that doesn't make sense. Like the 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 barrier to yeah the <laughs> the barrier to tripping these rules seems to keep keep uh, we keep running out of room. Well, well, to be to be fair, I, I would say I mean that 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 kind of trifecta approach it, it certainly does reduce your risk, but you just have to make sure you're not spending those four months in a really high risk country. Um, and you're being sensible about how you know how you, how you go about it, and you organize yourself and your affairs. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's certainly one of the things that we're seeing with the likes of places like the UK, like Switzerland, like Canada. You know, uh, the, these uh, countries are, are putting together like cross 
you know, departmental task forces to specifically go after remote workers. So we haven't seen like, a lot of well, people it hasn't been that well publicized, um, those task forces. Um, but trust me, you are going to see the results of these task forces in the next six to 12 months. And that much I'm absolutely convinced of. Um, and we're already seeing it even publicly with destinations like Spain and, and, and Bali mentioned that they're going to start cracking down this. So uh, let that be kind of the, the, the warning shot. And again, it does, there's still plenty of opportunities. Uh, there's still plenty of countries where uh, there, are, there are options out there. But at the same time, just do, do your research. And, and you know where every country you're going to spend any, anything over a month in, definitely do your, your research to make sure you're, you're not walking into a falling knife. It's crazy that one month is the barrier now because I know lots of digital nomads that are like, I need three months per place just to like be able to not feel like I'm, I'm moving too much. Yeah, well, look, I mean, for me, if it, if it was me personally, I would, and again, the most important thing is I say is there's no tax advisor knows every country in the world. And I would always say, you know, most important, if you're going to country, always consult if you, if you can with either somebody who's knowledge of local taxes there or ideally a tax advisor or whatnot. They're, they're the best people to, to speak to. But, you know, generally, if, if I'm going somewhere for, for uh, you know, four to six weeks, I'm not going to be too worried. But I'll tell you, as soon as you're going above that period, you know, six weeks, uh, eight weeks, and certainly if you're going over uh, over over three months, um, you're starting to get maybe a little bit, you know, pr- pretty nervous. And, um, and uh, yes, I would completely agree with you. I mean, spending five months, the days of spending five, five and a half months in a country and thinking, oh, there's no risk, I'm fine. You know, those days are, are definitely over. And and the, the key trigger is going to be, you know, when uh, you're seeing that they're they're scanning your passport, they're digitalizing the immigration process. Once once you're seeing that happen, then you know, you know, if you do that enough times, it's only a matter of time before uh, before you before uh, you know you, you get the letter in the post. Mm. So let's talk a bit about. Um... I guess how far back they can go on you. Um, I, I know you're not like a, a tax expert or a, a, like a legal tax expert, whatever, but you, you must anecdotally know, like, you know what I mean? So we were talking a bit about how people had vesting stock from like four years ago and they got letters. Um, I, you know, we've, we've seen um, Shakira, they came after her for like, 2004 or something like that like something mm. way back right in in spain and they said you were here in 2003 2004 2005 which is like pretty far back so like like do, do you have a, a sense of like how, how far back they they might be willing to go on these things yeah and again it really depends it depends on the local legislation but what you do have you do have like a look back requirement for residency for a lot of different countries um, like if I'm not mistaken, I think France and Germany goes back as far as 10 years, you know, where they can look back and they look back at how often you've been in that country. Um, Indonesia, I think it's seven years. I think, uh, in, yeah, I think in India, India off the top of my head, no, India, apologies. It was uh, in India, seven years, uh, Mexico, uh, Ireland is two years, Mexico is five years. So it really depends. Um, they look back from a, from a residency perspective to see, how often have you been in the country for the last couple of years? So uh, it, it is certainly one for some countries. You really have got to watch. Uh, you've got to watch the days. Um, how far they can go back? Again, I don't. It really depends on the country. Really depends on the country. But you can be pretty sure 
that uh, with almost with a shadow of a doubt, they'll be certainly starting at the starting point will be the last three years. And okay. it's possible they can go back uh, up to and, and um, even potentially above 10 years. So, uh, again, it's just something to kind of have at the back of your mind. Just because you've closed the tax here doesn't mean it can't be reopened by these tax authorities in future. What a nightmare. Imagine, you you know, you finally uh, get that remote job or whatever. You start uh, gallivanting around the world a little bit, three months here, three months there, three months there. And then by the end of it, you, you, you've you racked up like 12 different tax bills in different jurisdictions or something. Yeah, but the, look, I think the, the good thing is, is that, you know, typically speaking, for, typically speaking for you as an individual, if you're like, for example, you know, an employee, you know, you're, the company will will take care of it. They'll they'll be the ones that will be, um, you know, making sure that the compliance, everything is looked after and whatnot. Uh, but I, I think the difficulty becomes if you're an independent contractor and you're the one traveling around, um, you know, or you're the, maybe, you know, the, the, the founder of your own business, for example, mm-hmm. um, then uh, then that's essentially you trying to take uh, take that risk. Um, and look, to be honest, I, I, I don't want to be the, <laughs> I know I probably sound like the, the house, I, I sound like, the, like the, the big bad wolf talk with all these risks. I think there are pl- still plenty of opportunities just because, you know, that the tax authorities are getting stricter and immigration authorities are getting stricter doesn't mean it's still not possible. Like there's still plenty of options. Um, like, for example, option in, in, in door number one is a double taxation agreements where you've got double taxation agreements mm-hmm. where you can tax equalize and uh, you can make sure that, yeah, you're you're not going to be uh, paying a double tax in two different jurisdictions. If you just right. if you just make sure and get yourself organized in advance, you know, so in some cases that can be a really, really good option. Um, in other cases, it might not. And other other cases as well, you've got the option to go and play, go to places that are very very low tax. Full stop. Places like, for example, UAE, like in obviously clearly very very low tax there as well as many some of the Caribbean countries as well. And clearly, you're 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 not going to be too worried if you're spending a time in a country that has pretty much um, you know zero percent uh, tax. Um, but yeah, I mean, as as I said, there there are plenty of different options out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also don't I, I almost feel like someone's gonna listen to this and be like, you know what? Screw this whole digital nomad thing. This is gonna be insane. <laughs> like, you know. Oh no, it is. I, and the, the thing is honestly what's 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 important is that, you know, I, I, I hopefully after having listened to this, anybody that says, I really believe in location dependence, I want everyone to go and do whatever they want, what works for them, and I don't care. If you're you know, if you're the if you're the, the founder of a company or in a senior leadership position and you've got your team scattered all over the place doing whatever they want, I mean, you know, you're, you, that's, you, you might get continue to get away with that for a while, but at some stage it's potentially going to come and, and, and bite you in the ass. Um, so it's better to just get yourself organized now. Like if you're, if you're a company, for example, and you've got maybe 10 or 20 people working for you, what we often say to, com- to, to companies is just, Get yourself together, ask your team where they want to travel to um, and, and actually do the research in the different countries they're looking to travel to and spend time in or what they're looking to be hired in. And just make sure that you're not dealing with a country that is you know, really high risk. And you might be able to get some of that even from just looking at a Google, for example. Um, but, uh, but clearly, if you're dealing with a country that's anyway risky at all, you, know, you do need to cover yourself and make sure you're not walking into a falling knife. Um, and if you don't do that and you get caught, the fines in some of these countries can be can be really, really high. So 
it's uh, think of it like an insurance policy, just being sensible. And, and I think people in the team will appreciate and, and they'll understand, you know, if you explain something the right way, they'll understand that, look, they can't just go off wherever they want because if nothing else, just even managing the security of the data, for example, people do get that. You never mind tax, just even understanding that like they you've, yeah, you've yeah. got customers data that they're dealing with that you have to be kind of conscious of that, mm-hmm. that as, as well as like obviously the tax and employment law and whatnot. No, it definitely makes sense. And I, I think on the bright side, you'll probably start seeing companies implement an official remote work policy. Whereas previously, three years ago, five years ago, it was just very much a don't ask, don't tell type of thing. Um, and there was no official policy or sort of operating in a gray area. Um, but now companies using your software, for example, they can say to employees like, hey, one of the perks of working for our company is um, you get to spend uh, a month a year in in Cyprus or you get to spend a month a year in Southeast Asia and sort of offering it as a perk and not just looking at it from like a punishment frame or you can't do this, you can't do that frame, but actually uh, uh, from a, a positive frame as well. Completely. And we're seeing like the business case, like Spotify, year after they announced their work from an air policy, they, you know, they experienced 15% reduction in attrition, higher diversity and inclusion, um, a whole bunch of metrics that really showed very, very strong business value. So there's a business case for companies here to do it. And what I would also say as well is, you know, what we're seeing is that like the world changed overnight, like work is not a place, but clearly taxes are. The challenge is that a lot of countries have just got a lot of catching up to do to get their legislation up to date to recognize the world that we're in. So the the tax laws were formulated for a world that was analog, but we've gone digital. Yeah. So I think there's an appreciation. People have to understand it's just going to take a bit more time for countries to get there. And clearly the countries that are out the gate with the digital nomad visas that are the good ones, um, they're very, very attractive where you don't pay local income tax, for example, in a lot of cases. Um, and they can be a really, really good option. And so for those countries, they're certainly a- ahead of the curve for the ones that are well-designed, that is. Um, but of course, there's a lot of countries that are not. But one positive note is that we're already seeing in the European Union, for example, they're, they're working on potential legislation, for example, that would allow people to work anywhere in Europe if you're a new citizen for up to 96 days without triggering a whole avalanche of tax administration and whatnot. Mm. So I think that's an interesting one. So we're seeing also other... Countries as well, they're, they're looking to try and allow at least a certain amount of international remote work without triggering, you know, all this, let's say, headaches of, of tax and employment law and whatnot. So that's one of the other ones to, to watch out that gives us, you know, it gives us uh, some optimism for the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you when you pitch this to the uh, the, com- the companies and the corporate clients, do, do I mean, a lot of them, I'm sure, are just like, oh, I didn't realize all this stuff. What percentage of them are like, you know what, this is insane, no remote work for anyone versus how many are kind of open to the idea within, you know, a respectful framework? So the ones that are really heavily regulated, like banks, for example, they tend to go, you know what, we're, we're not we're not really feeling this. But they, do you know what's going to happen? They're not interested in remote work in, 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 uh, in many cases anyway. So if they're not interested in remote work, they definitely won't be interested in international remote work. Um, but definitely the companies that are in a battle for talent, for, you know, for highly sought after talent, like software engineers, 
um, you know, great designers, different people like that, that, that talent demands a certain amount of location flexibility, including international remote work. So, you know, those companies that put their head in the sand and say, you know what, I can't handle this. Um, it's, it's, it, yes, there's risks of doing it, but you know what? Equally, there's risks of not doing it. And that's not getting the talent you're able to get access to uh, some of your best employees leaving it. So I think uh, the risk isn't as, it's a, it's, it's, it's not like a, it's not like, it, 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 some people think of it like through, through a zero sum game, but then you think it would have a little bit differently. It's not just about the risks of doing it. It's also risks of not doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I think it's kind of a no brainer that every company is going to probably need an official policy around this at some point. I think like, even something as simple as like you can work remote two weeks max, just like you can kind of do like a, a mini working vacation, just something as simple as that. Um, I think just goes a long way to um, not operate in this gray space. Yeah. That's what a lot of companies do. A lot of companies do, for example, maybe, you know, 30 days in Europe, 15 days outside Europe, or maybe 60 days uh, in Europe and, and uh, 30 days outside Europe. I've seen some companies go up to, 90 days um, the companies that allow you know 180 days or more are the ones that haven't a clue about the risks um, they're they're the ones that uh, you know that that are they're going to find out the hard way that um, they're in for a world of pain um, but then you know for the companies that do allow it, the, the really conservative ones will say oh no we only allow we allow only allow in countries where we have legal entity um, and the ones that have maybe a bit more risk appetite will say, well, look, you, you can go in places where we don't have a legal entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, you know, we, there are, we are certainly seeing trends out there that more and more companies are becoming more open to it and using it as a way to attract talent and, and, and keep the talent uh, that they have. John, where is your team based? Because obviously there's a, a software component to what you do. And, and uh, I bet you have a bit of a global team. How, how do you manage your global team and, and where are they based? So, yeah, we're uh, based in uh, my uh, co-founder, Donald. He's based in Sydney. So we do an awful lot of async, you know, things like Loom and uh, uh, voice messages and Slack and whatnot. Um, we're head of global mobility, uh, Imelda. She's based in the UK. Um, and we then have uh, various people dotted around the world, tech team in India. Um, but, yeah, various people dotted around the world uh, as part of the team. So, you know, we're very much living the brand. That's awesome. That's awesome. And what about like developers? Uh, are they contractors? Do you have like full-time developers? Um, yeah, for us, we actually do a fair amount of, uh, of development um, uh, in-house uh, basically. But yeah, we also use a mix of contractors um, and whatnot, employers of record. So we've a, we've a nice mix. But for us, yeah, that kind of stuff, keeping it as close to in-house is, is, uh, is really critical for us. Uh, let me ask one or two just like kind of selfish questions about uh, Europe as, as we kind of get to wrapping up because uh, I mentioned yeah, offline, I think I'm kind of ramping up to visit Europe this summer. Um, what's what's kind of stopping someone from registering in like a really low tax European country, be it like within the Schengen, like be it, I don't know, like Bulgaria or Latvia. I don't, I don't really know what the lowest is right now, but, and then just sort of like paying cash for rent in, in like Italy or Spain and, and kind of like living under the table. Like how, how long can people kind of keep that going <laughs> or like, what's kind of like the, the current 
the current yeah, scene so, in, in Europe for that. Yeah, the, the, just yeah, there's certainly a lot that people can get away with. But then one of the things that we're seeing now is with the European ESTA. So there's going to be like a European kind of a digital visa immigration, um, uh, let's say, platform that's going to be uh, brought in where it'll be much easier for immigration authorities to track digitally. Uh, the entries and exits in their country. And when that happens, that's going to be, um, yeah, you're going to see this kind of stuff come up much easier. It is definitely true with, uh, you know, with, with the Schengen. It's it's clearly much harder for uh, countries to, to track it. But again, you know, it, it's it's all fine and well until, excuse my French, the shit hits the fan. So let's say a company gets into a court case or a suit or somebody has an accident or somebody falls down the stairs and ends up in hospital you know, and then all of a sudden they sue the company and then all of a sudden, um, you know, the tax authorities go, hold on a second, that person's been working here for X number of months. Uh, why didn't you report it? And and that's where, you know, that's where this stuff can become a, become an issue, you know. Um, but I think, you know, in general, I, I would say it's kind of at a very high level, not just in Europe, but globally, we were kind of in the, the COVID phase up until, I would say the beginning of uh, of last year, where there was a lot of freedom given to to people and to companies to kind of get themselves together, and more or less the message was: listen, use last year to 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 get yourselves uh, together, um, and you can be sure, like the tax audits that are taking place this year, will be related to twenty twenty two. The companies that didn't have, you know, that didn't have them their act together, they're going to be the ones that are that are going to find out, you know, this year the the whether you know, the consequences of. Uh, of, uh, of, of being all over the place, let's say. Um, so I think I'm kind of following these next couple of months very, very closely. <laughs> cool, cool. And uh, what, so Europe in the summer is pretty crazy in terms of high season in, in Southern Europe and stuff like that. What's kind mm. of the play for avoiding the crowds? Do people kind of do like an inverse tourism and m- maybe like go go visit Sweden in the summer? Or how do you, how do you avoid the the big crowds and stuff. I think it's just so crucial to get away from the, the real typical tourism hotspots, you know? Um, and I think it, again, when you look at remote work, it's, it does make it so much easier to be able to visit those lesser well-known regions or villages or areas. Um, it's a, it, it is fair to say anywhere with the beach in Europe is going to be pretty busy, but certainly if you go a bit inland, a lot of these countries, uh, you can uh, you you can have a few more uh, a few more options, um, but even then, like there's certain countries that really are just crazy busy during the summer, like the typical like the Frances and Italy's of the of this world, and you know of course in Spain and um, Spain for example, but, but many others are, are just going to be really really busy. I mean to be honest, when it comes to Europe, July and August are, are months where you know, it's um, it's a, there, there, isn't, there isn't too many places that are not really busy with tourists at that stage, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, to be fair, you're coming in, a, in a June. June should be – you should have a few more options in June. It shouldn't be quite as busy. Mm-hmm. What's, like, the Wi-Fi situation in Italy? I'm not sure if you're an Italy expert, but, like, I, I had my eye on Sicily, but I thought the Wi-Fi is probably, like, terrible in some of the hotels there. Do people like? Do people kind of work off their their phone Wi-Fi a lot? Do they do they hotspot a lot in Europe? There, or what do they do? There has been there has no there has been a lot of investment in uh, in, in fiber and, and broadband infrastructure in the last uh, in the last decade or so. Um, in Italy, 
I I would suspect it's better in the north than it is in the south of Italy, but I would still say, um, you know, they they've been putting a big play on attracting remote workers in Italy over the last year or two. So I, I suspect uh, I suspect it might depend on on the village that you're working in. Um, but I, I'd be surprised if it's not good. I mean, pretty much all over Europe, you know, the hotspots are great if you need to go hotspot off your phone. And like for me, I mean, I'm here in I'm here in Portugal now. I've like over 200 uh, megabyte a second download speed, so I'm pretty good. Um, you know, and that's I'd say the worst uh, the worst let's say the worst internet connections I was dealing with was actually when I was in the US. Um, I've traveled on a fair bit in the US, but I, I, I was actually in the US when I was there in August. Like everywhere else in Europe I've been to has been really good. Okay, okay. Um, one or two last questions as, as we start to send you off. People love uh, hidden gems in our audience. They love kind of off the beaten path uh, spots that that aren't, uh, you know, the main tourist hotspots. Do you have in Portugal, or I'll even open it up to all of Europe, do you have any hidden gems that you want to uh, that you're willing to divulge to us uh, in terms of uh, lesser known spots that you expect to grow in popularity or that you think uh, uh, are underrated. So first of all, outside Portugal, a place that I can't wait to get back to is a place called Bariloche in Argentina. Uh, I had a, such an amazing time um, in Argentina a, a number of years ago. Can't wait to get back there. That's a place that I'd be very curious to to, to get back to. Um, in let's say Portugal, a place that's starting to two places that are um, well, certainly one place in particular that I, I really really enjoyed, and I'm hearing a lot of good things about it as well. A place called Comporta um, Comporta. is uh, is in Portugal? yeah Com- yeah Comporta in Ooh, Portugal. I yeah, about this. Okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, you, know, you take a look at it on Google, you, you'll, get a, you'll get a pretty uh, good okay. sense. Okay, Praia da Comporta. I actually randomly mm. had a star on this already. I had a pin on this. Comporta yeah. looks cool, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I was in uh, Sagres uh, recently. That's uh, mm. certainly a lot less developed, but somewhere like that, I could be interested to see how that, how that goes over the next uh, couple of years. Um, I, I, a place that's very well known. It's not original at all, but I, I, I absolutely adore Aracira. I really, really do. It's uh, such yeah, a like gem of a, yeah, real gem of a of a place. Um, and then outside of Portugal, and then let me see. Outside of of Portugal, uh, I am um, trying to think. I think between Portugal now, Argentina, I really love my time that I spent there. Um, I really am keen actually to see a lot more of South America. Uh, so I think we'll we'll hopefully maybe next year get a bit of time. Um, spent there and, and uh, get a chance to to uh, to visit a few more countries there when we get a chance. I would say also uh, Croatia. Croatia is another place as well. Yeah. I've, uh, I've 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 we were very very close to uh, to moving there. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's another place I would I would have uh, lots of really really good things to to say about. Can you tell me uh, just a bit about Sagres real briefly? Because I've actually been very curious about it. It just seems very cool in terms of kind of being. Um on that peninsula there and, and, and like cool surfing and stuff. And I did see that, I don't know if it was outside, but I did see that a, uh, uh, I think a co-living or co-working just recently opened in Sagres. So I think it, it is going to grow. What were your thoughts on Sagres? Um, so yeah, if you look at, I mean, the, the beauty about, about Sagres is that 
you're uh, you've you've got like for example Lagos is uh, I've no idea like 20 30k away so it's not too far away from there but Sangres is really unspoiled and you know it's it's quite it's quite small uh, right now and unspoiled but I I would expect it to get a fair bit of a you know there'll be a fair bit more activity uh, opening up over the next couple of years but really beautiful beautiful cliffs beautiful beaches Really peaceful. Uh, you're out with nature, um, and uh, and and unspoiled, really. Um, so it's a little bit of a hidden gem. Uh, we had a great time. We were there recently, a couple of months ago, and and uh, at Christmas, and it was um, yeah, a really good place called Martin Hall. There, it's like perfect for families. Uh, we we did an amazing time there. But yeah, I, I would say uh, that would be one. The, the thing would actually what's what's quite interesting in Portugal is uh, it's a lot of these hidden gems that most people haven't heard about all along the coast. So. I expect the remote work to see a lot more of that happening now over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed Peniche. I enjoyed Ericera, Nazare, but the water was just so cold. Like, you just couldn't, it is cold. Just couldn't really go swimming, which is yeah. one of the benefits of Mexico. Is every day I can go up, I can go for a swim. I went for a swim this morning, and I'm almost like, would it? Be, I haven't even been to the Algarve yet, but I'm like, would it be tolerable down there? Like, all I don't even know. Yeah, well, it depends. How, I mean, I would say in the summer, absolutely, it'd be amazing down there. So, coming in June, I would say Sagres would be a good time to go there. Give it, maybe give it a, give it a week, see so you get on, and then you know you get a bit of a taste for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, let's start wrapping up this episode, John. This has been a really interesting, uh, just in terms of letting us know what the future of remote work holds and all these compliance issues that. Uh, are definitely going to be uh, growing issues in the future. Um, I think uh, you've done a good job of sort of get, getting in front of this trend and, and building products that are are serving this market. So tip of the hat to you because you, you've definitely um, hit a very important piece of this. I appreciate it. It was a real pleasure, uh, real pleasure, Vance. And I mean, the, for me, the big thing is I'm, I'm optimistic overall because I think yeah, countries have got to realize that there's such a huge opportunity to get it right. And with the likes of digital nomad visas and employers of record and countries trying to make themselves attractive for remote workers, I think uh, there's so many different options that I, I expect to see unfolding. And of course, then with the technology side as well, of course, that's what we do, but lots of others as well that are helping, navig- helping uh, you know, individuals and companies navigate those risks. Absolutely. So uh, the website is wfa.team, work from anywhere. John, where else do you want to direct the audience to learn more? Yeah, exactly. So feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, the, the website wfa.team. Um, they'd be the two best places or, or follow us on social media as well. Um, we've got a couple of interesting like, free resources as well for individuals on the website in case anybody's interested um, they can also take a look there. So it's not only for companies, there's also some resources for individuals there that might be helpful. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, that's probably a good one for entrepreneurs. Absolutely, 100%. It was a real pleasure, Vance. Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you, John. appreciate your time and uh, wishing you all the best. This has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Again, today's guest was John Lee from Work For Anywhere. From Work For Anywhere. <laughs> work From Anywhere. <laughs> Pleasure, Vance. Thank you. Cheers.